15 minutes ago, the world changed. Companies are microchipping their workers. Robots are hiring humans. And brain-to-brain -brain communication is a thing. This is all happening now. If you want to know what happens next, listen to the Jim Stroud Podcast. As we finish out the year of 2019, I'm going to try and do something a little different. I'm going to try to put together a three-part series. Oh my goodness, I sound like I'm NPR. A three-part series of why employer brands fail. Because when employer brands fail, they fail for a lot of different reasons. Because employer brands are so complicated, so messy, and they, they don't have the same elements. They don't have the same components. They don't have the same ideas of what drives them. There are a lot of different ways they can all fall apart. So we're going to try and close out the month by doing this three-part series of why employer brands fail. This is the first, if it makes sense. Uh, I'll keep going and do the next two. In fact, I'm going to record all three in the same day. So there you go. So we'll be right back to talk about why employer brands fail. Welcome to the Talent Cast, the world's most caffeinated employer brand podcast. I'm your host, James Ellis. And I've been doing employer brand for years now, and I absolutely love the industry. I love how it's growing. I love how it's changing. And I've tried to do my part to elevate the concept, to get everybody to understand the power employer brand can have in hiring, attracting, and retaining talent. So we try to really focus on driving home the idea that this is a calling and a craft. It's a lot of getting your hands dirty, but it's also a lot of big strategic thinking. And that's where we kind of live, that kind of uh, Venn diagram, the intersection between those the big ideas and the getting the details right. So we talk a lot about employer brand and how to do it right and how to think about it and how to look at your problems in a whole new way. Ready to rock? One, two, three, let's go. Hey, how you doing? James Ellis for the TalentCast. Again, as per usual, as per always, housekeeping, I've got the newsletter is coming on strong. We've got coming on almost 800 subscribers. So wow, thank you, everybody. Keep subscribing to that. Just go to employerbrand.news, sign up. And I'm offering open office hours. So you can have 15 minutes to ask me any employer brand question you want free of charge. All you have to do at some point is say thank you online. And that's really as, as easy as it gets. So if you were interested in that sort of thing, the link is in, well, it's available. It's all over the place, but you can just ping me on Twitter or LinkedIn or email, and I will give you the link so you can book your own 15 minutes and ask me whatever you think is appropriate. If you'd like to just yell at me and say, really, who has the audacity to think that they know employer brand better than anybody else, which I know it sounds like half the time, uh, that's fine too. It's really up to you. But let's talk about why employer brands fail. So I did spend a little time taking a few notes, and I know that's unusual for me, or at least it should be obvious that it's unusual because I'm pretty much making it up as I go along, as I know many of you are too, and I'm fine with that, as should you be. Anywho, I want to come up with the reasons why employer brands fail, and I came up with six reasons, and I'm going to do two reasons per episode. Let's see how long this takes to kind of break down and break into pieces, but that's really what we're going to talk about. So the first First, let's do, I'm do one at a time. You know, I can reveal it like it's, I mean, it's a year end, right? Everybody's doing their top 10 lists of TV shows and movies and books and, and, and internet memes of the year and of the decade. But let's do a big, you know, a slow reveal. These are in no particular order other than these. Yeah, I knew I was doing three episodes, so I figured I'd clump them together in what seemed like, a, you know, it made sense to me. And, indic you know, that's indicative of my head more than anything else. So the first reason why employer brands fail is this. They have poorly defined goals and intentions. What the heck does that mean if it's not in some sort of change management textbook? Well, what it means is somebody gets a wild idea. Somebody reads the article. Someone listens to my podcast and goes, wow, this employer brand thing is freaking magical and epic and let's go ahead and 
sprinkle it in like magic fairy pixie dust on everything we do and it'll make everything magically better. Or they say, well, we have a bad employer brand problem. Let's go fix our glass door score, right? Or, you know, they, they, they go one of two ways. They either micro look at it, you know, they say, okay, we have a glass door issue. We have a job descriptions issue. We have a career site issue. We have a video issue, whatever. And they call it their employer brand. Or they go too big and they think, ah, all we need, because everybody's, including myself, are writing all these articles about how powerful an employer brand can be, how it increases uh, applicant or candidate quality, or it increases uh, or shortens the time to fill, and it shortens or lowers the cost per application and cost per hire. It also lowers your turnover rates and increases or lowers your regretted uh, blah, blah, blah. your regretted attrition rates, right? It says all these wonderful magical HR things and somehow when you do them, you go, huh, it didn't do those. The trick is you have to define what the employer brand is, which is why every time I speak, every time I do a presentation, I start with a definition of what employer brand is. So this will be no different. I'm gonna do it right now. Those of you you who listen to this podcast will hear it many, many times. But it is simply the idea of what one person thinks about what it's like to work for you based on all a 360 degree rotation of touch points and experiences, meaning, they saw something on the news. They have a friend who works there. They have a friend who bought your product and hated it or loved it or whatever. They had to call customer service. The recruiter was a jerk when they reached out or the recruiter was incredibly helpful when they reached out. Long before and long after the application candidate experience thing, you are absorbing information about the brand, about what it might be like to work there. My example, my favorite is Target, whom I adore. Like I said, I, you know, I've, I've, I have a lot of, you know, I, I have a kid, so all my money goes to Target and Amazon pretty much at these days. Um, but does that mean that I want to work at Target? Well, gosh, there are a couple constraints because I'm in Chicago and not the home office of Minneapolis. What kind of jobs would even be available for me? But knowing that I like the products and knowing I like the stores does make me more inclined to want to work at a company like Target. If they called me and said, hey, we want you to help us with this thing, I would be like, oh, I would be far more inclined that it was a brand I didn't know anything about or didn't engage with or Worse, I had heard horrible things on, and therefore I'm more or less inclined to engage. And as I view the entire process, as I go through recruiting process, I look at it through the lens of that brand. What do I know about this company? What have I seen about this company? And your job as employer brand is to manage that because the real employer brand is all of those perceptions of what it's like to work for you aggregated as one idea, which of course is impossible, but that's why our job is so much fun. Okay. So if you understand that is your definition of employer brand, and I highly recommend you do. I did not invent it all. I've stolen pieces from other places. Uh, I have an indebt- a debt to Richard Mosley for pointing out exactly the idea of making it crystal clear that it is truly touch points and experiences because he's crystal clear, he's completely right, that that is where those perceptions really come from because those are the ones you feel. Those are the ones, you know, you read something, you're like, Meh, okay, cool, but this might be more powerful. Anyway, If you understand the definition, the definition of employer brand should shape why you're doing an employer brand project. If you read that definition or hear that definition, you go, cool, then I guess I'll fix my glass door scores. You need to listen to the definition again because you did not get it the first time. If you see things through that microscopic straw, the drinking straw through which you view the world, you're never gonna make a difference. Because for example, let's say you fix your glass door problem or your video problem or your content problem or your social problem or your career site problem or your job posting problem. Or your retention problem, or your referral problem, or advocacy problem, or whatever you have. If you solve one of those problems, congratulations. You have made one element of a hundred or a million better. Did that move the needle? Probably not. 
We talked about this a couple episodes ago, this idea that if you have, if uh, your employer brand is a very long meal and every course is delicious and has its own kind of meaning and purpose, one is more savory and one is more sweet and one is a palate cleanser and one is to pair with a wine maybe, I don't know. And at the end you get that dessert and there's a fly on that dessert, how good was that meal? It could have been the best meal you ever ate over and over and over again, but that last experience, that one single, singular, unique, disgusting experience taints and flavors the entire meal. That's your employee brand. That's why you have to approach all the elements. You have to see the 360 and try and fix all of them at once, which of course, if you don't have a staff of 100, is really hard. Again, that's why our job is so much fun. The other part of it is the intention what did you want your employer brand to do? Did you just want it to increase your Glassdoor scores? Well, then make a Glassdoor project. You, you just want to rewrite your job postings to make, make your job look more interesting? Great, do that. Don't call it employer brand. Employer brand is really complicated. And if you try and say, this is what my employer brand project is, you're up for some really problematic conversations. When you know your leadership who reads about employer brand asks you and say, wait, why are you only focusing on that one element? You have to be prepared to answer and explain what that one element is supposed to do, why it is the singular, most uniform, most unique and powerful element of the you know, broader 360 conversation around employer brand. If they don't think that you have a sense of what the bigger employer brand is, they're going to think you're just you know, what's the joke to every person with a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. If they think you're just looking for more nails instead of trying to step back and see the bigger picture and see the big problem and actually solve a true employer brand problem, they're not going to take you seriously and this whole project is going to fail. At the same time, because employer brand is so kind of hot right now, it's in all the news, you know, all the articles. There's a, apparently there's a newsletter I write about it. Uh, there's a whole podcast I do about it. Because lots of people are talking about it, it shows up in Harvard Business Review. It shows up in Strategy and Business. It shows up, shows up in Corn Fair and all the other places that people talk about the concept of talent as a business strategy or a talent as a business advantage, a strategic advantage, right? Employer brand is, 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 is top on the list. If... You think that it is a magic fairy pixie dust and it's going to solve your morale problems? No. Is it, you think it's going to solve your retention problems? Uh, no. Chances are if you have a morale or retention problem, there's other stuff to unpack. And if you hire someone or work with someone who's great at employer brand, who knows how to unpack that and say, ah, your problem is that you've got these policies where no one's allowed to work from home or everybody has to wear a suit every day, even though most of them don't even engage with customers because that's just the culture that you think you want to do. That there's other underlying problems. The employer brand usually doesn't have, and that's especially true, um, for people who are junior or people who haven't worked with employer brands before, they don't dig deep enough. They don't drill down to the real problem. It's like they're band-aiding the surface but not realizing that there's still a problem way underneath that they have to deal with. Otherwise, that band-aid will just simply get ripped off and have a new one placed on it, and you'll do that every week without ever healing. You have to really understand, if, you, if your leadership sees employer brand as this magical fairy pixie dust that's going to solve all your magical problems, you're in trouble. And your job is to kind of bring it back to reality and say, okay, we can solve potentially some of those problems if, and that's a very important if, if you allow me to help, let's say, recommend changes internally. Here's the, here's the, the go-to I go to all the time, things like, you want to change how women perceive you, change your family leave. 
Simple as that. Start with that. Is that the only thing every woman cares about? No. Is it a thing only women care about? No. But that is very often the canary in the coal mine of a, of a woman looking at a company and saying, is this a company that's going to take me seriously or am I going to have to fight all these battles all over again? And the sense of, is that the bare legal minimum of FMLA, then gosh, they don't take women seriously. They not have a mother's room? Gosh, they don't take women seriously. They don't have any kind of program for women coming back to work? Gosh, they don't take women seriously. Again, it's not even about they're planning on getting pregnant and they want to have a baby or have 20 babies or whatever, but it's about, it's an indication that this is a company that cares about women. So if this is a problem to solve the sense of we have a women issue, as it were, and that's poorly worded, but there you are. If the goal of employer brand projects is to change women issues, nothing you will do. No amount of purple banners on March, no amount of Grace Hopper spends, no amount of lesbians who code you know, investment will change the fact that at your heart, you don't seem to care about women. Before you take that project on, you need to get the opportunity to say, can I dig deeper? Can I recommend changes beyond the quote-unquote obvious employer brand stuff from a policy level? to say, this is what your problem is, this is why women look at this company and say, ah, it's not, they don't take women seriously, these are the things to change. And on top of which, we will communicate those changes all day long, doing the quote unquote typical employer brand stuff, right? But unless you make that change at its heart, at its core, at the DNA, none of this will matter. So you can see how very big and complicated and messy this is. So if you have poorly defined goals and intentions, your employer brand project is doomed to fail. All right. That was one. I got six. So here's number two. And I've written about this a lot lately, so it's very top of mind for myself, but always happy to talk it through because I learn so much when I get a chance to talk to y'all. So thank you for that. So it's built on the wrong stuff, meaning it's built on creative. And I'm not saying, and when I say this sometimes, people kind of get all persnickety and say, ah, but creative is important. And creative is absolutely important. Do not get me wrong. The trick is, let's, let's, let's take a step back. The reason why the reason why the FedEx logo works and has worked for what 30 years, something like that, is not because they picked magically perfect colors. It's not because they picked exactly the right font. But because not the beside and there is the reason why the person who designed it is probably the most famous logo designer in the world. Um, but because the intention of it was not simply to say, put a, a, a mark on my product, on my service that people will recognize, that was not the brief. The product, the goal was not to make it colorful or attractive, make, it, make people happy. The goal wasn't anything like that. The goal was to say, reinforce a core idea that what we serve is motion forward is movement forward. We deliver those packages. We're always moving. That is core. That is that is not something that the brief immediately probably said. There's probably a lot of discussion that got to this idea of it has to reflect the idea that we are reinventing the concept of mail delivery so that we can deliver packages overnight every single day, that we are doing something that no one's ever done before. Heck, their business model was, or an, an internal logistics model was built on the idea of a hub and spoke model where every package, no matter where it came from, flew into Nashville airport and then flew back in. So even if you're flying, taking your package from New York City to New Jersey, which is literally across the river, it's going through Nashville. And the, the people who invented it, when they presented it to professors, they went, that's crazy. But they were really, really redefining and reinventing and I don't know, blowing up 
and you know the whole idea of what it meant to deliver a package. And their logo had to reinforce this. It had to say something to that. It's you look at the post office here in the States, and the logo is about stability. You've always seen that logo. The logo doesn't change very often. It's the U.S. Postal Service, the U.S. Post Office, right? It is about ne neither rain nor wind nor sleet nor snow. It's, we will always make our reported rounds no matter what we do. Of course, those things are not completely true. Sometimes the mail, the, the snow <laughs> just screws up the mail. But the brand was about stability, and everything around it reflected that over the course of decades. And as FedEx comes in, they say, we have to shake things up. And we don't have to just come up with pretty colors or cool fonts or a great tagline. We have to reinforce with every single fiber, with every single, I don't know, outline, with every line, with every pixel, but this would be four pixels, um, every element, every tiny, tiny, tiny to the quark DNA level, right? To the to my, my, uh, minuscule level that we are here to move this idea forward. And that is why the logo has a negative space arrow in it right there between the E and the X. If you haven't seen it yet, I've just blown your mind. You're going to go look it up and you should, and you'll never, never see it. Never, you'll never not see it ever again. The designer didn't simply say, you know what this company likes? It likes these colors. And oh, hey, look, there's an arrow in it. No. There was a lot of conversation of what is the purpose of this thing. Creative built on a great brief, meaning understanding the purpose, understanding the intention, understanding the audience, understanding what it's trying to say, not just with the letters or the fonts, but with its pure design, what it's trying to insert into your brain, that takes something deeper than quote unquote pure creative. Now, great creative directors think that way naturally, but those people are few and far between. I know two of them in the employer brand space. I will not name them, but I know that they're great. And I know that if even if they are quote unquote just creatives, and I'm using air quotes because the just part, you know, kind of denigrates them a little bit, though it's un though that's wrong. Even if I give them just a creative project, I know the level of strategy and the level of thought and the level of research and unpacking of an idea will be unparalleled. Like I said, I know two of those people. In a world of employer brand and recruitment marketing creatives, I know two of them. So it's unlikely that if you build your, your employer brand on creative, you're going to get anything less than some thought about what should the colors say? What should the colors make me feel? And that is a very facile understanding of what employer brand is all about. If I'm trying to get people to understand and create a frame through which they see my entire company and why you might want to work for me and what it might be like to work for me, that frame is meaningful. And if you just pick a color because it's in the, the, uh, the brand uh, palette or the font that everybody else uses everybody else, you know, everywhere else in the company, you have missed the point. If you're just trying to make it look pretty and make it look nice, you have missed the point. The frame says something. And in fact, the frame informs everything you're about to see. That's incredibly powerful. Picking a color, picking a font, picking a cool picture in stock art. Oh God, I said stock art. Even taking a good picture. Even if you took a nice camera and went out to your offices and did a whole photo shoot to make your own kind of weird stock art. By the way, don't do that all the time. That's unnecessary. You should balance your, stu your faux stock art with more uh, intimate and more real, quote unquote, authentic pictures, but that's a separate conversation. But even if you take your own photos and you're showing people what it's like, the picture itself is particular. It has to be informed by what are you trying to say? Are you trying to say that this is, it's in the same way that I have a bugbear when people say, we have a great culture. 
What the hell does that mean? You have a great culture. Cultures are for yogurts. What does a great culture mean? Does it mean that you all band together when times are tough and you hunker down and you're all, all for one and one for all? That is a great culture. If it's strong, if it's real, if it's permeated and integrated through everything you do, that is a strong culture. What if you're a place where you, every person is given lots of opportunity to run in whatever direction they think is appropriate with the resources to move it forward, and that is the culture. And if it permeates everything you do, it is a very strong culture. Those two cultures are radically different. You can't say you just have a great culture. You have to define, you have to explain it. What is your culture? What is it about? Why is it great? Why is it interesting? Why is it normal? Why, or why is it interesting? Why would I, what would I get out of it if I saw it, right? That's your culture. If you just say it's a culture, that's that. That's like saying, here's a picture of what we do. It's a warehouse. It's an office. It's a bullpen. It's a whatever it is. The picture, it, it doesn't do anything. It has to mean something. You need to build your creative, your information, your tech stuff, your po- all that stuff needs to be built on a concept and a concept that is true to who you are. And that's where the hard work really happens because, and everybody who's in creative and anybody who's in development, anybody who's in UX, UI, and all this other stuff will tell you the fun, sexy part of is the last mile. The designing a thing and making it look cool and making it look interesting is literally the last mile of a very long marathon. That the real hard work goes into understanding what makes the company unique. Why do they do what they do? What change are they trying to make in the universe? Why do they pick one person? When they hire someone, why one person over another person? When the person succeeds, what makes them successful? What do they feel when they're successful? What do they feel like when they're moving to the next stage of their career? They were successful, what happens next? Is it, are they asked to just keep being that kind of successful or are they allowed to grow? How do they feel when those things happen? What happens when things go bad? How do you celebrate successes? All of those things, tiny, tiny little ideas speak to the larger picture of what your employer brand is. And that is what you need to be getting your hands into. You need to understand that. Now me, because I'm me, and frankly, I think I have a lot of reason that this is the right way to do it, but obviously I'm not the only person who does it. For me, I like to have a framework. Now for a long time, I worked on a nine kind of, and I've talked about this, right? You know, this nine concept model. Is this company all about opportunity? Is it all about stability? Is it all about prestige and status? Is it all about um, support for one another? Is it all about, what is the company all about? Because once you get those nine ideas, it helps you understand, ah, I am playing in a very crowded marketplace. If I'm trying to say I'm, an, I'm very innovative and you're trying to compete with, oh, I don't know, SpaceX and NASA, best of luck <laughs> because the bar for innovation is way up there. What if you said and tried to compete instead against those companies for work-life balance or maybe not status, maybe for opportunity? You can reframe yourself to say, look, if I'm trying to hire an aeronautical engineer and they have their choice of SpaceX and NASA and my company, how am I different? You can't out SpaceX, SpaceX. You can't out NASA, NASA. So what is unique about you? And that's the model I worked with for a very long time. Now that I'm at Universum, I see there's an even deeper level of breaking that up into 40 motivators. What motivates you to move forward? Is it prestige? Is it uh, uh, leadership and development and training and uh, ethics and status and market success and 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 and, and. There's literally, literally 40 of these. So um, if you ever want me to show it to you, let's set up a call so I can show it to you. But if you 
look at the world through that lens, what those kinds of frameworks allow you to do. It's not just a conceptual idea that nerds like me like to talk about. What the framework allows you to say is, ah, this is how I see how we are different from three other companies that have nothing to do with us. This is how we are different from a Southwest Air and a FedEx and a NASA and a Facebook. Three companies that have very, 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 very little in common. But you can say as a project manager, because every one of those companies and your companies hire project managers or product managers or salespeople or what have you, how would a salesperson or a product manager or a project manager choose one over the other? You can't simply say, ah, we're hiring a project manager. They're absolutely going to want to work in aeronautics. This is how we're different from other aeronautic companies. That's, that's too easy. It's too simple. It's too thin. You need to go deeper and understand what are you offering at a core level? And then using that framework, if you can identify what things you offer, you can compare yourself with other companies so that you can establish what your blue ocean model is. Where are you competing? Where are you working in a place where no one else seems to be talking about things. If you're in a, I'm spitballing here, I just talked to an oil and gas company who prides themselves on their level of ethics. And that's a thing that a lot of other, you know, a lot of energy companies don't necessarily either talk about. I'm not saying they don't have ethics. I'm simply saying it's not what they talk about. It's not what they do to make themselves different. They've established that ethics is a place where there's a little blue ocean space where they can kind of plant a flag because some people will say, I absolutely only want to work in a company with ethics. And by the way, the energy, energy industry as a whole is complicated when it comes to ethics. So standing on it is unique. Ah, there it is, the word unique, therefore differentiation, therefore strong employer brand. And then it's the job of the company to reinforce this idea of, no, we stand on ethics. Now they stand on other things too. Don't get me wrong but it's a way of allowing them to differentiate themselves from other companies and not just from other oil and gas and energy companies, but from any other company. How do they differ? That's the thing we don't really talk about very often is this idea that um, your talent is coming from everywhere. Everybody needs a developer. Everybody needs a project manager. Everybody needs um, admin staff. Everybody needs sales staff. If you're a plumber, chances are you're working for yourself or you're working for a, a handful of other companies. So plumbers and nurses and there's certain jobs that you're always in a certain industry. But every hospital needs a developer. Every hospital needs a salesperson. Every hospital needs an administrator. Every hospital needs... Um, project managers and, and IT staff and facilities and yada, 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 just like every bank needs that, just like every, I mean, everybody needs these things. So consequently, the barriers around industry have fallen apart. So unless someone comes in desperate to work in aeronautics or desperate to work in banking, you are competing with a lot more companies than you used to, which means you need a framework that allows you to compare those apples to apples. Not just, well, Facebook's Facebook and they offer all this money and move fast and break things in San Francisco and yada, 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 though they're not in San Francisco just anymore. How do you compare against that? And how do you compete against that? Without a framework, you really don't know. You go, well, I guess we have to make a, a bigger social network than they do, at which point you are trying to out Facebook Facebook and you are screwed. So don't do that. All right, so those are the first two reasons employer brands fail. The first, poorly defined goals and intentions. The second, building on the wrong foundations, whether it's creative, whether it's tech, whether it's um, 
what politics say is okay to, to kind of work with. It doesn't matter. You got to work on something deeper. You got to get into the, you're going to get your hands dirty and then the, the guts of what your company is all about and what it's trying to do that's different and look at it through a framework that allows you to differentiate yourself. Otherwise, you're just going to be same old, same old. So with that, I will see you next week with the next two reasons employer brand fails. Uh, other than that, uh, yeah, talk to you then. Bye. This has been an episode of the Talent Cast, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. If you'd like to get in touch with me, a couple ways to do that. Obviously, there's Twitter at The War for Talent. You can go to the podcast website at thetalentcast.com. If you'd like to stay up to date on the news of this industry and what's going on, just go to employerbrand.news and sign up for the email newsletter with lots of news and links to other places. If you just want to connect with me on LinkedIn and just say hello or let's just talk, that's linkedin.com slash in slash the war for talent. Or I bet if you just search for James Ellis, I'd pop up pretty quick. Otherwise, if you have any questions, concerns, considerations, ideas for podcasts, holler at me, let me know what's going on. Thank you if you've shared it. Please share if you haven't. Rate us, review us. I love all that stuff. It really does help kind of keep the message going and get the message out there. Thanks again, and uh, we'll see you next week. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert, Warren Buffett, once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.